Did you know that parents rank financial literacy as the number one most difficult life skill to teach? Meet Greenlight, the debit card and money app for families. With Greenlight, you send instant money transfers, set up chores, automate allowance, and keep an eye on your kids' spending with real-time notifications. Kids learn to earn, save, spend wisely, and invest. And parents can rest easy knowing their kids are learning about money with guardrails in place. Get your first month free at greenlight.com slash odyssey. This is a Vault Studios production. Now, the sheriff's office is asking for anyone with information in this case to call their lead detective on this. You can also call in tips anonymously to Crime Stoppers. That number is 504-822-1111. September 2017. It's been almost two months since Nanette Krentel's life came to a sudden and violent end. Almost two months since someone fired a gun into her head and burned her body beyond recognition inside of her home. And over those two months, her family's frustration has just grown. Every unanswered question and dead end, adding to an uneasy feeling that something's not right about this investigation, that somehow someone is keeping information from them. But they're determined to get answers, to search for the truth with or without help from investigators to get justice for Nanette. Well, you hate to see anybody go through any type of loss of a loved one, and it's only compounded when you don't know, you don't have answers. For Vault Studios and WWL-TV, I'm Katie Moore. This is Beyond Bardstown, Lacombe. So talk to me about how you got involved in the Nanette Krentel case. Kim is our county attorney, and I've dealt with her on a lot of cases, and in Nebraska, the county attorney is also the coroner. So we've done a lot of what I would refer to as generic death cases together. This is Doug Johnson. He spent most of his career investigating homicides. He mentions he's worked with Nanette's sister, Kim, in the past. She's actually a prosecutor back in Sioux City. She asked me if there was a If I knew of a pathologist that would be willing to basically do a private autopsy. And I worked with Dr. Bennett for years. So I called him. He was interested in the case. They got a hold of him Mm -hmm. and set it up. Enter Dr. Thomas Bennett, a forensic pathologist with ties to Nanette's family in the Midwest. I knew Kim Watson, Nan's sister, but not very well. But I knew Doug Johnson, an investigator that worked real closely with Kim, and Doug and I have been working together, friends for years, decades, Mm -hmm. and uh, just respected him so highly. He said, Doc, I need some help. You got it. What do we need? And you're an expert at this. I mean, let's talk about your background a little bit, because not only are you a forensic examiner, Mm -hmm. right? Right. But your expertise is in fire damage. A lot. I've been involved in many of them. I consult around the country and even out of the country on motor vehicle crash cases with fires, uh, plane crashes with fires. I do a lot of work in that. I've been at this over 40 years. Mm -hmm. So you've seen a lot of things, especially in terms of damage caused by fire and what the impact is on human remains. I've done over 12,000 autopsies and testified in court. Dr. Bennett and I worked together on a lot of cases and there's a lot of banter, a lot of conversation, a lot of 
just discussion. Mm-hmm. And obviously he has the medical background and I've got more of the law enforcement background. It's nice to have someone to consult with. You'd like to have another forensic pathologist, but when I do cases here, Doug was like the foil to bounce things off of. Mm-hmm. Uh, because of his extensive experience in Absolutely. investigations, death investigations. Absolutely. He is very knowledgeable. I think I was listening to you a little while ago. He teaches, mm-hmm. and he teaches well. He gets the students involved, but he knows of what he speaks. Dr. Bennett agreed with the family that another autopsy could give them additional insight into how Nanette died. Think like six blind men and an elephant. Mm-hmm. You know, if you don't see everything, you get a wrong impression. So, you know, the six blind men with the elephant, one thought it's a tree, one thought it's a snake, one thinks it's a rope, one thought it was a wall. Mm-hmm. Um, if you can see everything, you get a much more complete picture. So in September 2017, Nanette's family hires the two-person team they believe might be able to unravel the mystery of Nanette's death. It is a little unusual to have a undetermined case, you know, for that long. They had yet to declare the manner of death, which would be homicide, accidental, suicidal, or whatever. Mm-hmm. And that's why she wanted a second pathologist. On September 11th, 2017, Dr. Bennett and Doug Johnson traveled to Louisiana to perform yet another autopsy on Nanette Krentel's remains. The next day, on the morning of September 12th, 2017, they arrive at the St. Tammany Parish Coroner's Office. It just so happens to be in Lacombe. This will be the third autopsy performed on Nanette's remains. The first one done the day after the fire, and as we'd later learn, the second one also performed at the request of the local coroner, Dr. Charles Preston. Additionally, Reconstruction work was done on Nanette's skull at Louisiana State University. Um, There's a very nice office down there in St. Tammany Parish. Her remains were there. Think about the dynamic here. Bennett and Johnson are two independent experts hired by Nanette's family to come in and take a look at an autopsy that's already been done twice by the local coroner. You can imagine how that might play out. And with that in mind, they realize right away that they're not going to get full access to everything they want. Uh, We found that we were allowed to look through them, but we couldn't do any documentation as far as pictures. Uh, With some prodding and requesting, they were gracious enough to look at the rest of the x-rays and some more of the studies that they had performed. I asked Dr. Bennett if not having access to the body is common in a repeat autopsy like this to not even be allowed to take pictures or notes. Sometimes uh, it's frustrating. The reason why is that somebody still has some questions and you should be able to do whatever you need to to answer the questions. The way the rules are written for doing autopsies, you can keep whatever tissues you need for scientific studies, but return everything else. You can do whatever studies you need to, but then respect the body. Uh, There are several things we weren't able to do at that time, but we uh, still were able to put a lot of clues together. Now, after they were done with their examination of Nanette's remains and the body was released for burial, shouldn't you have been able to conduct whatever physical exams you needed to do on it? There really wasn't much more we could have done at that point. The real benefit would have been to have reviewed 
everything from the start, all the scene information, scene photographs. When you do an autopsy, you should document things, the x-rays, the photographs, the report, the microscopics, everything like that then should be able to be reviewed. You gather the facts, offer your opinions. Um, doing a second autopsy at that point, much had been changed and lost. Ready to start talking to your kids about financial literacy? Meet Greenlight, the debit card and money app that teaches kids and teens how to earn, save, spend wisely, and invest with your guardrails in place. Parents can send instant money transfers, automate allowance, and more. Plus, keep an eye on spending with real-time notifications. Join more than 6 million families building healthy financial habits together on Greenlight. Get your first month free at greenlight.com slash odyssey. That's greenlight.com slash odyssey. One of the things that had been lost by the time Dr. Bennett entered the picture was the possibility of doing swabs for sexual assault. Some of Nanette's family members believed that should have been done the first time around. We didn't see evidence of it, but the only way to rule that in or rule that out is at the time of the first autopsy. The second autopsy, we couldn't. It was too late. Too late. Um, what else had been lost? Many of the fragments around the entrance of the bullet. Mm -hmm. uh, she shot probably somewhere along the right side of her head, above or just behind the right ear. And the shot went out the back left side of her head, back here into the soft tissue of her neck. We didn't get to see the fragments from the entrance wound. So I can't say whether it was contact range or from across the room. Hard to say uh, without that evidence. And those pieces were lost. But it was pointing down, right? Went down and actually back <clears throat> and to the left. So the shot came from her right side, a little above and a little in front of her line of sight. I asked Dr. Bennett again about the photos he requested during that visit. X-ray photos from the first autopsy that could offer new clues, new insight into what happened. He says they were not given the opportunity to see them. I don't know what rules Dr. Preston was constrained by. You know, he was, he was guarding things. Mm -hmm. And understandably, he didn't know me. I didn't know him very well. I came in there basically to just try and get as much, much offer help, whatever I could. A second set of eyes is often so refreshing. Early on, my sources were telling me some investigators believed Nanette killed herself. Nanette's family says they think that is a thorn in the side of the investigation, one that was already festering the day of Dr. Bennett's autopsy. Based on the angle of the gunshot wound, is it possible it was self-inflicted? If you look at one bit of evidence alone, you might say, oh, it could be, it could be. And so we thought, what rules it in, what rules it out? When you rule something a suicide, you have to be able to conclusively state, more probable than not, that this person succeeded in the purposeful attempt to end their life. Mm -hmm. Is the location of the wound alone something that could happen with a suicide? Yes, it is. 45% of self-inflicted gunshot wounds are to the side of the head. Mm -hmm. So that's a possibility. If you're right-handed, the right side, left-handed, left side, people can sometimes use the opposite side, but that's not much of a clue. But that's the only thing that points to a suicide with everything else we're dealing with, the scene, uh, the lack of any vital reaction to smoke in the air. So many other factors ruled out the suicide completely. So that's why we're able to conclude very easily that this was a homicide, not a suicide. Based on what he's able to see and study, Dr. Bennett also confirms without a doubt 
that Nanette stopped breathing before the fire ever got to her. There was no evidence that the atmosphere of the fire, heat of the fire, anything of the fire was at her when she was alive. And remember, the definition of death is the irreversible cessation of circulation and respiration. So as long as you're alive, you're breathing and or have circulation. You have something going on. She had evidence of neither one. So she was not anywhere near the fire um, at the time she died. That's where the scene comes back. And the scene says the fire started at her. So therefore, that's what we're dealing with here. She couldn't have done that. If you're in a fire, the atmosphere of the fire includes gases like carbon monoxide, things we look for. None was found. It also contains a smoke, particulate matter, that gets inhaled into the lungs. We can see it grossly with the unaided eye or microscopically. None. Either grossly or microscopically. She couldn't have done that. How quickly would you get that microscopic evidence in her lungs? Like if she was lit the fire over here, ran to the other side of the house, would she have evidence of soot in her lungs? Well, that's the problem with this. Uh, all it takes is one or two breaths and you can have soot in your lungs. Because, you know, a fire like this burning inside a closed area, inside a house is technically an area that would be oxygen deficient. So therefore it will produce carbon monoxide. A fire that doesn't have adequate oxygen will produce carbon monoxide more than carbon dioxide. Even with that gunshot wound to the head, the difference is death is not instantaneous. Death is a process. If you have complete cessation of breathing, you still will have circulation for a period of five or six minutes, 10 minutes even, witnessed by somebody who's on life support in the hospital and they finally pull the plug. The heart will continue to beat because you don't need brain input to have your heart beat. Same thing, if you have complete cardiac arrest, you will breathe for five or six minutes afterwards because your brain has enough drive down in the brain stem to control the muscles that will breathe for you. They've done studies that demonstrate how if you do have complete cardiac arrest, a person will breathe, or a pig in this case in the studies, would breathe normally for a couple, three minutes, then have the erratic breathing, finally the last gasps, and then stop after about five or six minutes. In five or six minutes, copious soot smoke would have been there. You'd find evidence of inhalation, and there was none. Plus, there's no evidence on her body that she was ever alive, blistering, or anything being exposed to the heat of the fire. So you only blister when you're alive? Technically, yes. Finding a blister that's full of fluid on an upper body surface of someone who's in the fire indicates that that tissue was damaged and there was blood pressure which could push fluids into the damaged tissues and make a blister. You know, if you get a uh, first degree burn is red, mm -hmm. second degree burn is red and blisters and it's sore. So that blistering indicates that there's been some damage and the circulation will push fluids into it. Now, technically, you could also, by virtue of position of the body, blood will settle down and actually can push some fluid into damages along the sides. None of that occurred. So the conclusion on there is that she was dead long enough that there wasn't even fluid still remaining in a position to make blisters along the edges. The back of her body that was against the floor was not that badly burned. The front was very badly burned. All of her burn injuries were to the front of her body, the exposed areas. She wasn't alive when the fire was reaching her body or the smoke. Something else Dr. Bennett puts in his final report has to do with pooling of blood around her head. 
or in Nanette's case, the lack of blood in that area. Okay, she had a gunshot wound to the head. A gunshot wound to the head would bleed copiously. Um, you would find a large area around this on the floor. With debris falling around, fires tend to burn up. So any of that blood that would be down there on the floor around her would be still present. It may be altered, uh, could have debris fall into it. It could be um, dried out somewhat. It could stain the tile, could do most anything. From everything I saw, the pictures, there was no evidence that there was blood around her that much. And to my questions, when I would ask investigators, I didn't get an answer that anyone had looked. So I still don't know what the investigators found. So there's a possibility she wasn't even killed in the bathroom. Very much so. Overall thoughts about what you think happened to Nanette? I think it's pretty clear it's not a suicide. It's a homicide. Who did it? You know, the forensic pathologist rarely can point to who did it, especially with no more evidence than we have. But that's where the good investigation of others really helps out, like what Doug would do and the other folks who have been to the scene and talked to this. In my opinion, she was shot. The fire was set. Could be even hours afterwards, destroying whatever else was present around there. There's a rule we have that says the absence of evidence is not evidence of absence, which means basically the fire can destroy a lot of things. We just don't see them. You can't rule it out, can't rule it in if it's been destroyed. An autopsy can also destroy evidence. So we have to make sure we get things right off the bat. I think she was shot, the fire was set afterwards. We have a homicide. There's one more thing I wanted to ask Dr. Bennett. You'll remember that investigators said they believe she went to McDonald's the morning she was killed. So wouldn't an autopsy reveal evidence of that meal? I ask if anything was found in her stomach. I didn't see the original autopsy report, but I was told there was a pill. I was told it was also a slow-release type of a tablet, which is most probable. Uh, the slow-release tablets have more of a, a waxy, granular composition, which is how the drugs mm -hmm. seep out more slowly, so you don't get them all into your stomach at once but they also tend to last longer in the stomach. So she had this one pill. No food? No food. And if she had gone to McDonald's that day, how quickly would the food disappear from her stomach? This goes back to a study from an old professor of mine, Earl Rose. He was the one that came along and, and wrote the article saying that in the first hour after you eat a meal, mm -hmm. your stomach tends to uh, mix things up into a slurry called chyme. In the next hour, it, pushes it down into the small intestine, and that's where digestion really takes place. And after about six hours, the very first part of that makes it all the way through the small intestine down to your cecum. Now there's a range on that, depending upon how much liquid, how much more solid, fatty, not fatty, do you have alcohol or not in your system. Basically, if she went to McDonald's and died within a few minutes afterwards, you'd find evidence in the stomach. We didn't see that. In other words, if it's Nanette in that McDonald's video, and if she died not long after eating breakfast, then food would have been found in her stomach. If it were hours later, maybe not. Or maybe she bought the breakfast sandwich for her Chihuahua Harley, as some have speculated. But unfortunately, we still don't know Nanette's exact time of death. 
Before leaving that day, Doug Johnson tells me he saw Dr. Bennett sharing his thoughts with the St. Tammany Parish coroner. Dr. Bennett was, uh, he he had a pretty good conversation with the coroner. We left, and I know Dr. Bennett, I was standing there when he said it, told the coroner that this is homicide. And what what did you feel like the next step should be for the family? I mean, this is like something that you've done how many times in your career? I don't I don't know what the the sheriff's department has done down there or what they haven't done. Really no position to judge their actions at all because I don't know what's going on. But I think the family is probably entitled to at least some communications. You know, at this point, you may not be able to tell them anything that's going to really satisfy them, but at least let them know that this is not a forgotten issue. I then asked Doug Johnson about getting justice for Nanette. And for the first time, anyone's really said it this clearly to me. He points out an obvious fact. Someone did this, and they're still out there. Well, obviously, I believe justice is paramount Mm -hmm. and not just for the Watsons but for for everybody there's a public safety issue as well because if somebody's responsible for that death and they have yet to be identified and arrested you know potentially there's exposure to the public too so it's in my opinion it's it's imperative imperative not just that there's justice for Nanette but that a killer someone capable of doing what was done to Nanette Krentel, is put behind bars. Doug Johnson said something else that stuck with me. The first night I met him, he told me there's no way Nanette's murder was random, that the evidence is just too clear. Someone had to know how to get onto that property and do what they did. Someone had to know where the DVR was for the surveillance cameras and where to place the accelerant. There were just too many things that pointed to the killer as someone who knew Nanette Krentel. Following Dr. Bennett's visit, the St. Tammany Parish coroner, Dr. Charles Preston, puts out a news release concluding that all of the evidence, all three autopsies, in addition to the reconstruction work done at LSU's lab, known as FACES, points to Nanette Krentel's death as a homicide. The release reads, quote, Coroner's office investigators have treated the case as a homicide from the beginning, but due to the extent of damage to the remains, significant examination was required in addition to the initial autopsy. Even before the second and third autopsies and the FACES Labs report, there was adequate evidence to rule the death a homicide, Preston said. Quote, Because of the complexity and sensitivity of the investigation, however, we wanted to give this case the utmost attention and thoroughness. The victim's remains have now undergone three autopsies and a forensic reconstruction. Based on information I have received from FACES anthropologists, the state fire marshal, and our two pathologists, I am entirely comfortable in declaring this death a homicide. Strangely, that same day, the sheriff's office puts out a statement saying its investigation, quote, does not necessarily support the conclusion, but that they'll hold a press conference the following day. North Shore Bureau Chief Ashley Rodriguez has been following this story and joins us live now with the latest. Ashley? 
Hi there, Ton. Though the St. Tammany Sheriff's Office, Coroner's Office, and State Fire Marshal's Office have all essentially been pretty mute on this case up to this point, one thing that has been clear to Krentel's loved ones is that the agencies don't quite seem to all be on the same page. And that's something they say concerns them as to whether Nanette will be getting justice. And the next day during that press conference, and as we mentioned before, St. Tammany Parish Sheriff Randy Smith tells reporters that his office has cleared Steve Krentel of any wrongdoing. He also states clearly for all to hear that they are in fact investigating the case as a homicide. We have worked this case and will continue to work this case tirelessly and aggressively as a homicide and we have since day one. As you can imagine, it's a statement that must have seemed odd to Nanette's family. After weeks of trying to get anyone to confirm that was indeed the case, that they'd been investigating Nanette's death as a homicide since day one. The following month, in October 2017, the FBI gets involved. Their role, according to the agency, is to assist local investigators. And Steve Krentel seems to welcome the news. I was actually very happy to hear that. I'm glad that the sheriff's office is doing what they had promised me from the beginning, and that is pulling out all stops and making sure that every resource that's available to them has been utilized and is being utilized. I'm looking forward to them piecing together what happened and trusting that they're doing their job doing that. But as 2017 winds down and six months pass after Nanette Krentel's death, there are still no answers, just questions, unanswered questions. Status is uh, still ongoing. We're still investigating any and all leads that we get called in. In the months and years after Nanette's death, investigators have been tight-lipped about any developments. But in 2017, Sheriff Randy Smith agreed to answer at least a few questions about the case from my colleague, former WWL-TV reporter Ashley Rodrigue. Our detectives are continuously following all leads. We're still getting people that'll call in with information, uh, and we have to check that out, make sure that we follow up and that we're not missing anything. And you guys are open to releasing what you can to help them help you. Yeah, we're going to release what we can uh, to the public, to the community, in hopes of getting someone to come forward. We want someone that has any information regarding this case to come forward. It is still ongoing. It's the the only unsolved homicide that we have here in St. Tammany Parish. And we're going to work hard just to, to clear this one, just like we have the other ones. Okay. Um, we've talked about other agencies being involved, uh, specifically the FBI. One thing that they are working uh, specifically for you guys is regarding the surveillance video at the home, and that's still outstanding, correct? There was a, a, there was a video recorder that was, that was burnt during the fire, of course. It was very hot. Uh, we went through it. We sent it off. We now have it back, and we uh, sent that back to the FBI. The FBI has it now. Try to an- analyze it. Uh, I'm not sure if they're going to get anything from that because of the badly the bur- badly burnt condition it was in. Uh, but they're working with us. They've been with us from uh, since this investigation started or thereafter. Can you address why the FBI expressed interest? The FBI reached out to us when they heard about the investigation, knowing that Stephen Crintel was a 
strong person of interest ongoing in this investigation. Uh, they wanted to assist and offer their assistance in helping solve this case and offering their expertise uh, and resources to us. Uh, knowing that this is a high profile case and involving Steve, who is a, uh, a public service uh, employer. Okay. Um, if you can address these, you know, perceptions about there continuing to be uh, competing theories on whether this case is a homicide or a suicide. Uh, we've heard questions about whether it was either or could it have been a suicide. Uh, the coroner ruled this a homicide, and that's what we're continuing to investigate it as. Okay. Uh, lastly, are there any suspects or persons of interest in this case at this time? No one to mention at this time. Uh, we've done a thorough investigation. We've cleared alibis on some of the, the main persons of interest. Uh, we will continue to follow up on any lead that we have. We continuously develop tips. We de develop names of people who may or may not know anything. We're going to follow up on it. We're going we're to do our best to solve this case. Is there any last message you have to the community or family or friends about this? Well, I'd like to say that we're, we're doing everything possible. This is, a, this is tough due to the fact that it was the fire was so hot and damaged and destroyed a lot of evidence. With evidence that we do have and have collected, uh, we're doing our best. If anyone in our community has any information regarding the Nanette Crintel homicide, please call us, let us know. But if calls came in, if anything new was happening with the investigation, Nanette's family didn't hear about it. If anything, they felt shut out. Steve Crendel was no longer a person of interest. The sheriff cleared him almost immediately. So who, if anyone, were they looking at? Her family wouldn't hear much of anything for almost a year until August of 2018, a year and a month after Nanette died. Wake up. Next time on Beyond Bardstown, look home. I call you and I tell you that there is absolutely no way I would I would bet my only child that my sister would never, never shoot herself. And you tell me that women shoot themselves all the time. They shoot their children, they shoot their husbands, they, they can possibly shoot their pets. Beyond Bardstown, Look Home is a Vault Studios and WWL-TV production. You can learn more about our podcasts, including The Daily Crime and True Crime Chronicles at vaultstudios.com. Special thanks to WWL-TV News Director Keith Esperos and visual journalist Derek Waldrop. Vault Studios executive producers are Brian Weiss and Will Johnson. Reed Redman is our writer and producer. Richard Humphreys at Tacoma Media in Silver Spring, Maryland, mixes and edits the show. For Vault Studios, I'm Katie Moore.